In the year 1010, after nearly three decades of persistent raids by Danish and Norse Vikings, the latest warlord to capitalise on England's weakness landed his retinue upon the eastern shores of Britain. He'd already raided in Kent during the previous year, and now, after overwintering with little opposition, he sought to expand his operations to the north. By the shores of the River Orwell, innumerable longboats glided into the river systems of East Anglia to make landfall near Ipswich. A few younger warriors, lightly armoured and eager, accompanied the host, perhaps the sons and younger brothers of the more experienced men, though for the most part, this was an army made up of career soldiers, many of them hardened veterans of the most famous battles of the era. Brutal sea engagements such as Hjomgavar and Svolder that took place far to the north astride the mountains and valleys of Norway. Not only were these battles politically significant for the history of Scandinavia and Northern Europe as a whole, but due to the increasing Christianization of the region, they had already taken on a semi-mythical quality by the year 1010. The men of East Anglia by comparison, many of whom were themselves the Anglo-Danish descendants of Vikings, had had enough of the near yearly harrying and raiding from the coasts, and now they came together to protect their homelands. Under one of the most influential power brokers in the county, the Thane Ulfkeitel Snillinger, a large force of household warriors and furred men from East Anglia and the surrounding counties came together to meet the Danes once and for all, to answer their greed with English spears. At a location named Ringmere Heath, somewhere in the Suffolk lowlands, Ulf Keitel and his men caught the Danes unawares racing out of the mist to engage the Vikings in a brutal pitched battle. In the ensuing fight, it soon became clear that the reputation of this Scandinavian force had been founded on far more than just talk. It was made up of a significant number of veterans from the feared Joms Vikings order. A legendary band of warriors, feared even amongst the regular Scandinavian armies operating at this time. The leader of the army was Thorkel the Tall, a prince of Scania, a lord of war, a ring giver, and a man who had had such an impact on the history of Scandinavia in the late 10th century that he was already deeply embedded in myth and legend by the time that he arrived in England. By day's end, the ferocity of the battle was so much that Ulfgeitel fled the field, leaving the men of Cambridge behind to die noble deaths under the spears and swords of the Joms Vikings. A roll call of Anglo-Saxon thanes and nobles died that day, along with untold numbers of commoners, at a place that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle vividly referred to as the Field of Slaughter, a visceral reminder of the harsh realities of war the terrible events that played out so long ago on that lonely heath in the lowlands of eastern England. In the aftermath of that inglorious day, 
England lay wide open to Thorkel and his men, who promptly headed east, looting, pillaging and plunging England into the darkest days that the young country had ever yet known. And Thorkel was just getting started. Both Thorkel and the Jomsvikings were genuine historical players, though Thorkel's career, especially its early part, when he was embroiled in the largely still pre-literate society of Scandinavia, is heavily steeped in myth and legend. It thus remains difficult to get to the real figure behind the myth. Likewise, the Jomsvikings he led to England's shores in the early 11th century had already been a powerful force in the Baltic Sea for decades, providing a persistent thorn in the side of the Danish crown. Said to have operated out of a fortress on Volin Island in the Baltic Sea, on the coast of modern-day Poland, then known as Wendland, fleets of mercenary Jomsvikings had participated in many of the major wars between Norway, Denmark and Sweden during this period, and now they were headed further afield. Though, for the most part, they were still staunchly pagan and dedicated to the worship of such deities as Odin and Thor, bands of Jomsvikings would reportedly fight for any lord able to pay their substantial fees. They thus occasionally fought alongside Christian rulers. Due to their independent nature, and sheer power in shifting political events, some scholars have likened the order to a primitive version of the Christian knightly orders of the later Middle Ages, such as the Knights Templar and Knights Hospitaller. Just like those groups, the Joms Vikings adhered to a strict code of laws in order to instill a sense of military discipline within their ranks. Each warrior was bound by blood to defend his brothers, as well as to avenge their deaths if necessary. Blood feuds and quarrels within the order were strictly prohibited, and orders from officers were to be followed on pain of death. According to the saga of the Joms Vikings, only proven men between the ages of 18 and 50 were allowed to join the order with potential members being required to perform a feat of strength, such as a duel with an existing member. Thorkel is thought to have been born in Scania, the Danish territory in what is now southern Sweden. As a son of the semi-legendary Jarl or petty king of Scania, Strut Harald, who himself is thought to have been a son of the Danish king Gorm the Old, and thus a half-brother of Gorm's successor, Harald Bluetooth, the foremost king in Scandinavia during the latter half of the 10th century. Thorkel first appears in the historical record in 986, when, as a young pagan warrior fighting for the Joms Vikings, then under the command of his brother, Sigvaldi Strut Haraldsson, he took part in the Battle of Hjorungavag a semi-legendary naval battle that took place between the Norwegian Jarls of Laid, seeking to become the paramount power in the north, 
and a Danish invasion fleet led by the fabled Joms Vikings. After a brutal engagement at sea, the heavily outnumbered Joms Vikings lost the battle, leading Sigvaldi to flee in disgrace, and Norway to reassert its independence once more. Though, at first glance, Sigvaldi's actions may seem like cowardice, he was likely motivated more out of a desire to preserve the remaining men of the order. Though Joms Vikings were forbidden to show fear or flee in the face of a battle, they were permitted to fall back in the face of overpowering or overwhelming odds, as seems to have been the case at this time. Unlike the Anglo-Saxons, who had a tendency to engage in suicidal forlorn hopes and doomed last stands, commemorating such events in epic poems and enshrining them in their culture, Scandinavians tended to be shrewd, and they knew when to pull out. The Joms Vikings continued their business for another 14 years, launching their own autonomous raids in the Baltic and fighting for the highest bidder, until they once more engaged in the next great, significant battle of the North. In the year 1000, Sigvaldi is portrayed in the sagas as treacherously luring the new Norwegian king, Olaf Tryggvason, into an ambush. At the ensuing Sea Battle of Svolder, the Icelandic saga, Heimskringla, goes on to portray Sigvaldi as deserting Olaf in the heat of battle, leading to his death. This action may have in fact been intended to fight against the increasing Christianisation of Scandinavia, which had been forcibly promoted by Olaf. As it happened though, the new Danish king, Svein Forkbeard, who had overthrown his father, Harald Bluetooth, in the 980s, who won the Norwegian throne when the sea battle ended, seemingly with support from the Joms Vikings, was, at least nominally, a Christian. He and his father, King Harald Bluetooth, are reported to have been baptised back in 965, as part of a peace arrangement with the Holy Roman Empire to the south. Though at times, Svein did renege from this Christianity, during his later years, he certainly adhered to it, with dire consequences for the pagan residents of Scandinavia. There is no record of Sigvaldi after the Battle of Svolder, though the invasion of England in 1009 by his brother Thorkel and another warlord, Jarl Wiffen, was allegedly intended to avenge Sigvaldi's death. So it is possible that Sigvaldi had met his end in England sometime earlier. Irregardless of his justification for crossing the sea, Thorkel arrived in England just as internal disputes within the beleaguered nation decimated a defence fleet that had been amassing on the south coast. When news reached the English king Ethelred of Thorkel's arrival, and faced with the imminent prospect of fighting the Joms Vikings, the remainders of the fleet promptly fled, leaving Kent to its fate. By that time, Thorkel, 
was one of the most renowned Viking commanders of the age. His army was of a different order than previous forces over the last 30 years. It was bigger, better equipped, better disciplined, and for all intents and purposes, resembled a professional standing army fit for a small country. During the following two years, they ravaged their way at will across much of southern and eastern England. Thorkel may have actually been working on behalf of the Danish king, Svein Forkbeard, though before long, his astounding success inspired him to go his own way. Another argument is that he was simply out to enrich himself from the beginning, possibly even intending to use his success in England as a springboard to seize power at home. Much like Olaf Tryggvason had done in Norway just over a decade earlier, Between 1009 and 1011, Thorkel's elite force crisscrossed over Wessex and East Anglia, plundering and burning all in their path, in the face of increasingly disorganised and desperate English defences. Finally, in September 1011, Thorkel and his men headed back south to Kent, where they laid siege to Canterbury, the religious and ceremonial heart of England. Just three weeks later, the city fell, after a traitor opened the gates. In the ensuing carnage, vast amounts of loot and captives were taken by the Joms Vikings, as well as the exorbitant sum of £48,000 of silver in return for their leaving the city alone. The largest Danegeld paid to date by far. Of course, this payment wasn't enough, and after the Archbishop of Canterbury, Elphir, refused to pay a ransom for himself in April 1012, Thorkel's men, fired up by looted wine, began mocking the priest by throwing animal bones at him. This mockery continued to escalate with larger bones and pieces of animal carcass, until finally an especially enthusiastic warrior threw a rock at his head, killing the Archbishop. Even in such dark times, the murder of an archbishop was a shocking affair. Thorkel seems to have attempted to force his men to spare Elphir, offering gold and silver for those who would comply, though ultimately he failed to do so, potentially leading to a dispute between some elements of the army. Once the Danegeld was finally paid and the shares divided up, Thorkel's army broke up with many of the Joms Vikings returning back to their base in the Baltic, others going back to Denmark as rich men. In a curious change of heart, however, perhaps exemplifying King Ethelred's much underrated penchant for diplomacy, Thorkel himself stayed in England, along with 45 shiploads of men. He wasn't raiding anymore, but entering the service of the English king, promising to defend the kingdom he had so recently mercilessly attacked, in return for food, shelter, and no doubt, more gold. Back over the sea in Denmark, meanwhile, Svein Forkbeard must have been waiting anxiously for news of the events as they played out. Most of all, he couldn't risk a vastly enriched Thorkel heading back to Denmark with an army to potentially seize Scania 
and perhaps even the Danish throne. Upon hearing of his alliance with Ethelred, Svein resolutely set out to launch one final invasion of England. This time, he set out to conquer the country entirely. Svein also had a vast army of veterans behind him, and they had little trouble in seizing the exhausted territories of England. With only London defying him, with Ethelred and Thorkel still inside the city walls. Eventually, the city too relented, its councillors begrudgingly accepting Svein as the new king of England. Ethelred took refuge with Thorkel's army and made his escape at first to the Isle of Wight, before heading to his wife Emma's kinsman in Normandy to seek refuge there. After Svein's surprise death in early 1014, Ethelred came back to the English throne. Thorkel finally decided that it was the right time to patch up his differences with the Danish royal family, and headed to Denmark to make his peace with Svein's son, Knut. The two not only made up, but Thorkel agreed to pledge his service to the young prince in his impending invasion of England. Knut's army was massive for the day, numbering Thorkel, the latest Jarl of Laid, Erik Hakonsson, as well as men from Sweden and Poland, not to mention the Danes previously loyal to his father. It was amongst this massive force that Thorkel again returned to England in 1016, facing his old adversary Ulfkeitel once more in battle at Ashingdon in that autumn, not too far away from Ringmere. This time, the East Anglian Lord chose to stay and fight dying in the heart of battle, along with his men. The new English king, Edmund Ironside, was mortally wounded there and died months later, leaving England in Canute's hands once and for all. In the aftermath of Canute's victory, in a stark reversal of the previous political situation, some of the foremost men who had ravaged England over the previous decades were now given control over vast swathes of land. Thorkel was one of these men, being given control of East Anglia in its entirety in 1017, in return for his loyal service. The Jarl of Laid, Eric Hakonsson, an old adversary of Thorkel from the Battle of Hjorungavar, nearly 30 years before, was given Northumbria. For the next four years, Viking warlords ruled over all of England, besides the Anglo-Saxon heartlands of Mercia and Wessex which remained in the hands of English families. In 1021, however, Thorkel and Canute came to blows, allegedly after Thorkel's wife was found guilty of poisoning his son by his first marriage, with the help of a witch. After swearing to her innocence, the old warlord lost face and was forced to flee the country. He fled back to Denmark, likely to his old stronghold of Scania in modern-day Sweden, though any potential of further conflict was avoided in 1023, when the two were reconciled once more, with Canute proclaiming Thorkel as the Jarl of Denmark. Just as abruptly as he came crashing onto the historical record, Thorkel, much like Eric Hakonsson in Northumbria, simply disappears. 
It may be that he was simply too old for any more conflicts, living out the final years of his life at court with no military commands, or even retiring from public life altogether. Or he may have simply been murdered by Canute after he was made Jarl of Denmark. Other speculations remain that he was cast out of the kingdom once more, to return to Jomsborg or Scania and live out the rest of his days as a wayward old soldier. Over the coming decades, the Joms Vikings gradually faded into obscurity, only playing an increasingly minor role in politics. The world was changing, and the newly consolidated kingdoms of Scandinavia could see no place for the wayward band of warriors. Ultimately, it was the King of Norway, Magnus the Good, who put the last nail in the coffin of the Order, sacking Jomsborg in 1043. He had been the first Norwegian king to rule over Denmark, after centuries of the norm being the other way round. And as part of his consolidating control of Denmark, he decided to put an end to the Order entirely, destroying the fortress of Jomsborg and many of its inhabitants for good, scattering the rest onto the high seas and into the realm of legend. This is a brand new podcast, so if you like what you heard, the best way to help the show out is to leave a review on iTunes. This is the best way for new podcasts to grow and for people to find the show. You can also find tons more historical material over on the History Time social media links. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If you really like what you heard and want to help me to keep making new podcasts, videos and articles, then the best way to help is to become a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash historytime UK. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll help me to keep making material, get sneak previews of what I'm working on, and gain the opportunity to vote on upcoming videos and podcasts. I'm Pete Kelly, and you've been listening to History Time. See you on the next one.